Now, if you hang around this church for a relatively short while, you'll hear us talking about grace, God's grace. It's a word that means undeserved loving kindness. In the New Testament, actually, the word for grace, charis, is very closely related for the word for joy, kara. Because what will bring you more joy than knowing that you are loved undeservedly? And as we pick up Romans again, this letter written by the Apostle Paul, an early Christian, in around AD 57 to some churches, small groups of Christians meeting in houses in what was then the capital of the known world, as we pick up this letter, Romans again, if we had to summarize chapters 1 to 5, we'd say it's about God's grace, His undeserved loving kindness. See, Paul starts in chapters 1 to 3, outlining why we need grace. He shows that every human being stands guilty before God. Whether you're a a non-Jew, a Gentile, who basically has rejected the God of creation and decided to worship the creation itself, looking for meaning and value in the stuff we can get around us, like status and and pleasure, or or whether even you're a Jew and you thought you could get right with God by keeping God's law, the law that actually showed you you're incapable of living up to God's standards. Whoever you are, Whatever your background, every human being that has ever lived stands before God guilty, silent, unable to excuse themselves. Uh, We've all failed to love Him as we should and to love each other as we should. The Bible calls that sin. Our love is turned in on ourselves. We're more interested in what we want and how we can get it. How does God respond to being treated like that? to being ignored, to being hated. Grace. He gives. And in chapter 3, we saw He gave His one and only Son. He gave His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to go to a cross, to die in our place. He gave His perfect life in the place of our guilty lives so we might be declared right with God, though we are guilty. We might be declared friends with God, though we are His enemies. We might be declared those who have a life to God, though we've tried to kill God in our lives. And all that comes to us, says Paul, simply through faith, through trusting that Jesus did that for us. And then in chapter 5, he says, actually what God has done is he's moved you to an entirely new humanity. He's taken you from humanity that followed the first man, Adam, and disobeyed God and therefore brought condemnation on themselves, and the result of that was death, eternal death out of relationship with God. And he's moved you into an entirely new type of human being under the Lord Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life, and therefore following him means you are righteous, right with God, and the result, eternal life grace. So if you look at uh, chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2, look, look how the Apostle Paul sums it up. Chapter 5, page 1132 in the church Bible. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We stand in grace. Though we still continually fall short of God's standards and fail to love Him, though we are disobedient day by day, God's permanent attitude set upon us is His undeserved love. A bit like the 
the sunshine on a cold, frosty morning, though we breathe in and out the, the bitter coldness of our rebellion against God, His grace shines permanently on us, warming our hearts. And therefore, by the time you get to the end of chapter 5, for Paul can say this, it's an outrageous thing. Look what he says at the end of chapter 5. The law was brought in so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In other words, God's law just shows us how far we fall short. But but the more and more we see how far we've disobeyed God, God's grace increases to match it. That there is no limit to the contempt we can have for God, the hatred we can show God, the, the, the lack of love we can display towards God. His grace always trumps our sin. We will never outsin His grace. That is God's love for us in Jesus. Now, now Paul anticipates that is a shock. In fact, look what he thinks someone might even say at the beginning of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. In other words, if God's grace is always going to trump my sin, I might as well go on living life the way I want for me. And Paul says, you've completely misunderstood it. By no means. See, if you... If you think God's grace is a a blank check of love for you to abuse, if it's a credit card for you to rack up a debt on that you never have to pay, you just haven't understood the work of God for you and in you. In fact, says Paul, you don't even know really who you are if you're a Christian and you think like that. And this morning, I I want you to understand first and foremost, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ... I hope you get this concept of grace. That a relationship with God is not about your performance, but His performance for you in Jesus. It's not about you trying to love Him. It's about that He has loved you in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about you achieving a set of standards. It's about Him accepting you despite the fact you failed to achieve those. But even even more than that, It's not about something that God has done out there for you that you have to muster up some sort of strength to believe in. No, for a Christian, it's about something that God has done in here, in the very core of your being. Because Paul says, firstly, we have died with Christ if we're Christians. We've died with Him. Look at verse 2 with me. By no means... We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We've died to sin's reign within us. See, when Paul talks about sin here, he's not just talking about our sins, the things we do wrong. No, he's talking about that attitude of our hearts that is wired to believe the best thing in life for me is for me to get what I want when I want. That that attitude that is the power of sin within us. And Paul says, when Christ died, that attitude died in him. Sin has no authority over us. So it makes no sense at all, if you're a Christian, to to live as though sin controls you. God has worked a radical change in who you are. Look, Look at verse 3. 
Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Baptism is a picture of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. In fact, the whole first half of this chapter is about what God has done for us. I don't know if you uh, like English grammar, it's coming back in in schools these days. But if you like a bit of English grammar, all the verbs in this section are in the past tense and in the passive. In other words, there's something that God did in the past and you didn't do anything. You were passive and God was active. You were baptized. You didn't get baptized. You were baptized. Because baptism, the the water, symbolizes the reality of what God did. He killed you in Christ. You see, water in the Bible is an image of God's judgment on sin. Most famously, when the world is flooded with, with Noah back in the book of Genesis. Do you remember that with the ark? It's God's judgment on sin. So, so when, when you go under the water in baptism, you're not getting washed, you're getting drowned. It's a picture. You died with Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism. I have a friend, actually, when he baptizes people, likes to hold them under the water for a bit longer than is comfortable, to make that point. Dead and buried, the old you, with Jesus. And then as you come out of the water, it's a picture that when, when God raised Jesus to new life, you were raised to life, a fresh start with him forever. See, Paul is saying there's no separation between what Jesus experienced and what has been done to you. Christians are in Christ people. In fact, if you read Paul's letter, he never calls people who follow Jesus Christians. Not once. You won't find the word Christians in any of Paul's writings. He calls us always in Christ. That's what we are. Now, now, that's not simply saying we choose to identify with Jesus. You know, you might uh, identify with a football team. You know, you might be a lifelong Spurs supporter. And therefore, when you talk about Spurs, you talk about us and we, don't we? We almost won the championship again. Yeah? Why is it we play like that when we face Arsenal? Now, you didn't actually play the games, but you talk about we. You're identifying with your team. But, but it's more than that here. Being in Christ is not just identifying. It's actually being united to, being absolutely joined to Jesus for all time. It's more like, say, a baby inside a mother's womb. We've heard a few examples of that in CNC at the moment, still got some. So, so when a baby is inside a mother's womb, wherever the mother goes, the baby goes. The mother comes into the room, the baby comes into the room. The mother goes into the car park, the baby goes into the car park. And the life of the baby is intrinsically tied to the life of the mother. They can't be separated. In fact, until relatively late in pregnancy, if the mother dies, the baby dies. The baby is in the mother. And so, if you're a Christian, you are in Christ. Your life is tied to his. It's not that when you become a Christian, 
It's like you get your old self a bit tarted up and then you're given this thing, a person called the Holy Spirit, so you can try harder. No, no, if you're in Christ, you've been radically changed. In fact, your Christian life didn't even start when you became a Christian. It started back before time began when God chose to put you in Christ. And then as Jesus went to the cross, God took that rebellious, sinful you and united it to his son as he died. So as Jesus died on the cross, it's as though he could have cried out, say, at a point in time, I now die for the sinful Daph Marion Jones or the, the sinful Annie Leggett. They were bound to Christ. And when on that first Easter Sunday that the tomb was burst open and Jesus walked out, were you united to Christ, were given a a new life. That was all done there and then. And at a point in history, God chose to apply that to your life as he brought you to trust in Jesus by the power of his Spirit working within you. Now that's why, if you look at the end of verse 4, why did he do this? the end of verse 4. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's what you have. A new life. Trusting in Christ. Just as Jesus lives now, knowing God as his Father, so God is your Father. But this isn't a passive life. This is an active life. That that verb live, that's something we do. In fact, uh, it's literally the word walk. This is a life we walk in day by day. We live out actively. Actively in relationship with God now and forever. You you see, in verse 5, he makes the point that if we've been united with Christ in his death, we will also certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, this is our life forever, bound to Christ in new life, in relationship with God. That is who you are if you're a Christian. Now, now do you see, that's so much bigger than saying, God sent his son to die for me so that I can know that I'm forgiven. And because he loves me, I know I should now live for him. Now, Now, all of that is true. But but actually, what God has done is far bigger than that. You see, that's all about grace out there. Something I I trust in. But Paul is saying, no, no, you've got to to grasp this. God has worked grace in here. He, He has changed the very heart of who you are. You have died. You have been raised to new life. You're in a relationship with God now and forever because he has bound your life to the life of his son. That is who you are if you're a Christian. That means we've been freed from sin, says Paul. That's the second thing. Look at verse 6. He says, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death has... I've read verse 9. Let's try verse 6. Verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so the body ruled by sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. You see, the the old you, the old person who died with Christ on the cross, that is 
That you is dead. That bodily existence where sin reigned in you. Sin was your desire and death was your destiny as a result. That's where sin leads. But those old selves, they were slaves to sin. In the end, we couldn't do anything but do it for ourselves. Oh, we, we, we might have done some good things, but in the end we did those good things because we were thinking about ourselves and what other people would think of us and how we could help the sake of humanity. We weren't doing them out of a heart that longed to worship God. But for the Christian now, the Christian has been freed. So verse 7, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. <laughs> See, it's, it's not just that the, the punishment for our sin was dealt with by Jesus at the cross. So, so we're no longer legally guilty. It's that the power of sin that controlled us has been defeated as our old selves died. And so Paul can say in verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We've got a new life like Christ's. A life free to live for God. Now that doesn't mean that we won't still be tempted by sin. In fact, I guess we all know as Christians that we will choose to sin. But it means this. We don't have to choose to sin. Sin has no power over us. And free also means that we're not just free from sin's power now, we're free from sin's final consequences. It's deadly consequences. So Paul can say in verse 9, For now, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death has no longer mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. See, death isn't our destiny anymore. No, no, we know we will live through death in relationship with God forever. So that means that when a a Christian sins, they're actually acting against who they truly are. who, Who Christ has made us. We're those who've been freed to live for God. Why why would we want to sin? Now, as far as I understand it, heart transplants are permanent operations. Now, people who have heart transplants, you have to have them to save your life, don't you? They're pretty serious things. Opening up the old chest cavity, replacing the pump in the middle, that's a serious piece of surgery. Now, imagine you had a, a diseased heart, and therefore you needed a transplant. And you go under the surgeon's knife, he opens you up, takes out your old heart, puts in a new one. Well, only one careful owner previously. Now, it pops in the new heart, and you get on with life afterwards. It'd be, it'd be madness, wouldn't it? If you went back to the surgeon and said, um, look, uh, life's, this new life, it's okay, actually. Your breathing's a bit easier. Don't get as many chest pains enjoying that. But I was wondering, I was quite attached to my old heart. Could I have it back? Would you mind popping it back in? Well, first he'd say, I'm I'm very sorry, that's impossible. We've incinerated it in the hospital incinerator. Then he might say, why would you want that? Why would you want that heart that was diseased, malfunctioning, and just was going to end up in an early death? You wouldn't want to... Don't don't you enjoy being able to walk up the stairs? Don't don't you enjoy being able to play with your kids? 
Well, our problem is, we, we still have this lingering thought that maybe our old heart was better. And old habits die hard. You see, sin, is, sin is deceptive. It, it constantly woos us to think, well, you know, life might be easier if I didn't go for that Christian thing all out. It, it suggests, well, following Jesus, that can just be part of your life. You know, just, just tack him onto the edge. You don't need to let him affect every decision you make. It tells us, look, all those other people are having more fun on Sundays than you are. They really are. They've got better friends than you as well. You are more like um, recovering alcoholics. You know, that the person who stops drinking is always a recovering alcoholic. We sort of know that the booze was killing us. We know it was destroying our family life. But we just can't quite get that feeling out of our heads that, well, it did help us when we felt stressed. Or we were a bit more relaxed. Life was a bit more fun with a couple of drinks in us. But drink has no power over you until you let it pass your lips. And so Paul says, sin now has no power over you until you choose to give in to its lies. So so do you see what he says we need to do in verse 11? In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's who you are, says the Apostle Paul. Tell yourself who you are. Dead to sin, alive to God, because you're an in Christ person. Realize that. Remember it. Rub it in. Rehearse it. Revise it considerably harder than you revised for your GCSEs. Do not forget who you are in Christ Jesus. So you and I are in a a living relationship with the God of the universe. That's that's who we are. I wonder if the um, if the Duchess of Cambridge has to occasionally remind herself who she is. You know, a member of the royal family now. Little little old Kate Middleton pulled the prince. Does she think? Oh my goodness me! I'm I'm a royal. I'm in the royals. Apparently, when the, the old queen mother, uh, when our queen and her sister, Princess Margaret, went out to sort of birthday parties, kids' birthday parties, I, I don't think they were down at sort of crazy tot, soft play and leatherhead. They were sort of different sort of birthday parties. But when the queen and Princess Margaret went out to birthday parties, the queen mother would say to them, now remember, darlings, royal children, royal manners. Royal children, royal manners. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, who you are affects how you behave. And you've been changed to the deepest level by God. So so now you live in a, a permanent relationship with him in Christ Jesus. You're a member of his royal family. You've got to remember that. So lastly, serve God, not sin. Serve God, not sin. Look, look at verse 12 with me. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so you obey its evil desires. You see, sin has no power, but we can still let it reign. We can listen to its voice. We, we can obey its passions. How? Well, verse 13 tells us, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Literally, a, a weapon of wickedness 
or a weapon of righteousness. Uh, The images of of two kings. Who are you going to offer yourselves to? Are you going to offer yourself to to sin for wickedness? Or are you going to offer yourself to God for for righteousness? Now, don't don't look at, at king sin, says Paul, and say, well, you know, I'll just relax. Here's my mind for a bit of dirty thinking. Or here are my lips for a bit of unkind speaking. Or here's my body for a bit of sort of self-centered, comfort-seeking living. And then off yourselves to King God. You've been brought from that dead way of life to, to living in relationship with Him. So here's my mind for thinking about your goodness and love, God, in the Scriptures. Here's my lips for telling people the gospel. Here's my body for, for sacrificial service. That's, that's who you are now. Uh, last, last week when uh, Manchester United played Arsenal, I know nothing about football, by the way. I've got two football illustrations. Had to look them up. Manchester United played uh, uh, Arsenal. Alex Sanchez, who used to be at Arsenal, went back to United. He didn't receive the warmest reception. Apparently, this is tradition in football, when he back back to his old team. Now, can you imagine that if Sanchez got on the pitch and... Um, when he got the ball, rather than dribbling towards the Arsenal goal, he set off towards the Manchester United goal. You know, beat, beat a couple of defenders and shot it in the Manchester United goal for their own goal. Well, that's a bit odd. Now, as the game went on, it, it, it transpired that Sanchez, though he was wearing the Manchester United strip, was evidently still playing for Arsenal. I mean, it would make no sense. You can, you can imagine Jolly Ollie, the new man, new man, uh, manager, coming on and saying, look, uh, look, Alex, me old boy. Except he wouldn't say that because he's Scandinavian. But look, Alex, me old boy. We paid a lot of money for you. And uh, you're on our team now. So, so you play for us. It would make no sense at all after that transfer. Well, well that's what Paul is saying. Paul in chapter 6 is outlining an enormous transfer God has made. It cost him a great deal. It cost him the life of his one and only precious son. He transferred us from team sin to team God. He took us from under the power of sin and freed us to live for him. He took us from those destined for death and made us those who have life forever with him. He took us from those who were enemies of his and made us into his royal family. And so Paul says, well, offer yourselves for your new team. That's who you are. That's the way you should play. Did did you notice that the problem words in verse 13? Look at verse 13 with me again. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Any, Any part of yourself. See, our problem is we want to compartmentalize life. We, we like a Christian life that fits into a little box called church, and if we're a bit keen, a life group, and if we're really keen, we might do something else. But, but any part of your sin, life, you know, your mind in front of your computer, your bank account we were thinking about today, uh, the way that you uh, treat your husband when you get home from a long day at work, any part of you, don't offer it to sin. Don't, don't think it's okay to just indulge sin. And then, did you see the problem? The verse goes on. There's another irritating word in this verse. But rather offers yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him. You see, in our little compartmental life, we like to keep the bit over here called 
reasonable for me not to really think about Jesus in this area. You know, who'd go to church twice on a Sunday? No, that's just, that's for the uber keen. Wouldn't want to think about doing that. You know, we, we want to keep this bit shut. The problem is God says every part of yourself. So everything about us, every single decision we take with our time and our, our money and, and our lives is to be thought about in relationship with him. It's just like Kate Middleton. Bless her cotton socks. She can't now think, I'm nipping down to little. <laughs> now I'll leave that security detail behind and I'm going to walk up and down the aisles telling them what I really think of their produce. She can't do that. She's a member of the royal family. Everywhere she goes, she's a member of the royal family. That's who she is. And so Paul says, you're a member of God's people. That's who you are. So, of course, everything you do, think about as offering your life to him. So, so why? Well, look at, look at verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law but under grace. You see, under the law, all you got was the instructions about how to change yourself. And we couldn't do it. But but now, God has radically already changed you through the death of Jesus. He's given you everything. So you can live for him. John Owen, who's a great Bible teacher in the 17th century in England, said he faced two great problems as as a minister. He said this, persuading people who are under the dominion of sin, that they are under the dominion of sin, and persuading people who are no longer under the dominion of sin, that they are no longer under the dominion of sin. In other words, persuading people who don't follow Jesus Christ, that look, sin rules you, and there's nothing you can do to put yourself right with God. And persuading those who do follow Jesus Christ, sin has no power over you. You don't have to do anything to put yourself right with God. Just live out the life he's given you. So here are four things to take away. They're very brief. Don't worry. They're one sentence. First one, remember your status. Verse 11, remember the truth about you. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Repeat the mantra each morning. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a work of his grace. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a work of his grace. Or if you're anything like me, repeat it to yourself as you go home from work in the evening. Tends to be more pressure then. Here's the second thing. Resist your sin. Verse 12. Do not offer yourselves to it. Do not let it reign in your body. Be, Be active in resisting it. There may be certain places you hang out that you know let sin reign in you. Don't go there. Certain times that you know you're not going to win the fight against sin. Don't go there. Here's the third thing. Resolve to serve. Verse 13. Did you see the logic of verse 13? The opposite of sinning, listen carefully, the opposite of sinning is not not sinning. Do you get that? The opposite of sinning is not not sinning. The opposite of sinning is serving. Have you ever tried not to do something? It's like sitting in a a kid in the room with a big chocolate cake and then going out for two hours saying, do not touch that. We are no good at not doing stuff. But, But God doesn't say don't do stuff. He says, no, don't do this, do this. So, for instance, if you're, if you're at a party and it's, it's going on late night and people are sculling the drinks and you're thinking, yeah, I'll just hang around here for a while, it's going to be harder not to be a few beers worse off by the end of the evening, is it? 
But if you're at a party, you think, oh, I better go home because I'm teaching in uh, adventurers on Sunday morning, and I need to be back to just finish off my prep, well, suddenly living for Christ gets easier. The opposite of sinning is not not sinning, it's serving. It's offering yourself to something else, to God and his service. Here's the last thing. Rejoice in grace. Rejoice in grace. Remember, you're not under law, you're under grace. Sin is not your master, grace is. Grace is your motivator. Grace is your heartbeat. Grace is your means of living for Jesus. So when you feel burdened by the Christian life, that is the lie of sin telling you that selfishness will make you happier. When you feel worn out by living for Jesus, that is the lie of sin that whispers in your ear, you'd be less tired if you were less committed. Where do we need to look? Not to ourselves. Oh, we'll never try harder there. No, no, we need to look to Christ and who we are in Him, what He's done for us, the reality that we are precious children of God because we are in Christ, living a relationship with Him forever with our Heavenly Father. Paul starts the chapter with a question, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And his answer, why would you keep on sinning? God's worked a total miracle in your life. He's utterly changed who you are. Sin's got no power of you. You're a precious child of his. Well, why would you want to go on sinning? That doesn't make any sense. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we all know that uh, too often we listen to the lies of sin that has no power over us, and uh, we think comfort, we think our own ideas, we think trying to stick serving you in a box would really be the best thing. Father, please help us to not let sin reign. Please help us to remember who we are, those who've died to sin in Christ and who are alive to God in Christ Jesus. So now sin and death has no power over us. And because of who we are, help us to offer ourselves to you in your service, for your glory, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.